You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Dr. Puya Bakshavan, uh, postdoc at MIT. And we're going to be talking about uh, artificial neural networks that can be used to uh, drive and model brain activity. So, Puya, thank you for coming. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, when, uh, when we talk about modeling brain activity, um, what facet of brain activity? Is it uh, just the vision, visual cortex, or is it... Uh, other kinds of brain activity, like what's the, the focus of your work? Um, in in general, the uh, my work as well as the lab that I worked with um, uh, with Jim DiCarlo at MIT, we're mainly focused on how the how our brain sees. It's mainly engaged in the visual cortex and uh, the mm-hmm. way it recognizes objects. Okay, so you are trying to model how humans uh, recognize objects. Yes, yes, mostly about uh, how humans perceive objects and try to try to basically model the, the computations and the algorithms that our brain uses to, to do so. What are some objects that people seem to model and perceive instantly? Uh, mm-hmm. Which ones do we have trouble with? And then same with computers. Yeah, one, one remarkable and interesting fact about uh, humans is that we, we can recognize uh, many, maybe tens of thousands of objects very quickly within tens of milliseconds. And um, some objects that are more common or are more relevant to, to our usual behavioral goals in everyday life, they, they, they basically are represented in our brain with a larger population of neurons. For example, uh, from previous literature, we know about like these, uh, they're called patches, different patches in the brain. For example, there is a patch in human brain that uh, most of the neurons uh, are uh, highly responding to faces, for example, are called face patches. Or uh, we, we think in general that the brain as a whole, like the visual cortex, it just pr- it makes an, a framework, an, inf- uh, uh, an infrastructure for us, if you will, that helps us to, to be able to recognize not only specific objects, but like any object that uh, could be represented by the same set of neurons. Have, um, have we been able to tap into visual processing in different stages as it happens, let's say, in a rat 
or in uh, even in a person to see what uh, you know like we've seen I guess the, the different hidden layers of a neural network and the images that they seem to be uh, composing but have we been able to do that with a live brain mm-hmm. I guess uh, if I understand your question correctly you're you're asking how do we compare the models with the brain right yeah have we been able to see any intermediate intermediate processing steps of yeah. the visual cortex in any living yeah. creature? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the core of our, our research is most is is about that fact. Is about how the internals of our models that we develop uh, or we use from other other labs, uh, how similar they are to the neural activity that are happening at different stages of processing in the brain. Right. So, for example, if you take uh, a primate brain, like a monkey's brain or human brain, when uh, when a visual stimulus is shown uh, to the animal. Its, its image is reflected onto on the back of the, the eye that is called the retina. And then that signal is transformed into a signal that is an electrical signal. And it's then transported to the cortex, first to the thalamus and then to the cortex. And then uh, once it, start, it, it enters the cortex, there are several uh, layers of processing that happen on that signal uh, so that it enables us to, to say what, what we saw. What object, for example, we saw, right? And the, the types of models, in particular, uh, artificial neural networks, a class of them called convolutional neural networks, that are currently our best models of uh, these uh, neural processing in the brain, they, they somewhat have the, a similar structure. They're not completely the same. They are some ap- approximation of uh, some of these neural mechanisms in the brain, but they also have like... Uh, several layers, they have la- different layers of processing uh, that uh, act on the output of the previous layers. So what we do, the core of what we do, the research we do is uh, try to, to, first of all, build and uh, develop better models that could, uh, uh, that could approximate the neural functions and the responses in the brain more accurately. And then second of all, to find ways, better ways that we can compare between them compare the, the, how similar these responses are. Well, how do we know that we're modeling any particular brain accurately? How do you figure that out? Yeah, so we use, we use machine learning tools for doing so. Uh, just, to, just to give you an example of how, how, do we, how do we quantify, basically, how good our models are, we, we, sh- we bring in a set of visual stimuli, a set of natural images, for example, like image of a dog, image of a face, image of a cat, image of a chair, and then we show these images uh, uh, to, to a monkey, for example, as we are recording neural responses from different parts of the brain, from the animal. And uh, we can now show the same set of images to our computational model, these artificial neural networks in our case. And then because these models, we've built them, we have access to their internal, basically the equal of neurons in the brain in our model that we call the model unit, right? And then we, we go inside the, our models and then we try to find uh, these units in our model that they, the way that they respond to all of these visual stimuli is very similar to the way that these neurons that we're recording from the, that we're recording from the brain, right? If I get, if I want to be more technical, for example, you can represent the, the activity that a neuron, that the way that a neuron responds to different visual stimuli as a vector and usually the response of an individual neuron is uh, is encapsulated as one number that is the firing rate, 
how many spikes it would generate after seeing a visual stimulus. And then we try to find these units in the model that produce the, state of, the same set of activities, similar set of activities to what the neuron is telling us. It's, this may be weird, but is there any difference between you know, sending a file or a, a neural network accessing a file that has an image on it versus literally holding up an image to a camera that connects to a computer that has a, uh, a neural network in it. Because we see literally by, you know, the, the photons of light entering our eye, um, computer networks seem to see by, you know, you send it a file or it looks at a file of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're asking, the question that you're asking is a very good one. Would, uh, there are, of course, there are differences in at different levels, right? There are different levels of processing. For example, we have we have one level we just care about the what algorithm is being done, what type of computation is being done on that input, and how different is that computation uh, that is done using a neural network in the brain and an approximation that is done using an artificial neural network in the in the computer. Right. The focus of my research is mostly on these computations, but we should not um, forget that uh, there are also like these lower level mechanistic uh, differences, the way that the, the brain is wired, the, 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 the way that the biology works, like using ne- neurons, different types of neurons, right? And they are fundamentally different, as we know, from how computers run, right? You have a CPU, for example, a central processing unit in the, in the computer. So there are these differences at different levels, but what we're hoping to, to achieve is to, to better approximate the function and the computation in the computer. And we have come uh, very far uh, since we started uh, to, to study the brain, but we're still very far in uh, modeling these neural processing in the brain at the level of accuracy that we can confidently say we know what the brain is doing, what these circuits in the brain are doing after seeing a visual stimulus, for example. So, so far, what are uh, neural networks that are emulating vision good at and where are they lacking? Yeah, so um, already there are many types of neural networks that are coming from mostly from machine learning community that uh, that they can they can uh, accomplish tasks like uh, recognizing different objects from uh, from static visual stimuli or to some degree uh, to uh, to recognize what types of actions are happening in the short snippets of videos. Or in some cases, like they're able to to recognize like what is what is the scene, for example, that you're looking at, not specific to an individual object. For example, if the scene is coming from a, like a kitchen or is like a a train station, things like this. And also, like there are different challenges that uh, uh, machine learning scientists that are working on vision problems are engaged with. And uh, one of the most challenge, like the, the challenge is now being pushed towards like. Uh, the problems that require multiple modalities of data. For example, uh, question, visual question answering. If you're shown an image, if you're shown a picture, and then if you're asked a question about that picture, how well would you be able to, to, to answer that question? For example, is, is someone doing something funny in this, this picture, for example, right? Or where do you think, like, if there, there is a picture of a, of a car, like going uh, going to turn to the left, like would you be able to infer that the, where the where the car is going to go next or not? Things like this are becoming the next uh, challenges for hmm. machine learning and artificial intelligence to solve. 
Yeah, that sounds much higher level. Interesting. Hmm. Um, where do you think the most difficult application of machine vision is right now? Is it a self-driving car? Is it in other applications? What do you think? Yeah, definitely self-driving cars are, are currently one of the, the most challenging, challenging applications of vision. Uh, of course, there are uh, there are many the many branches in the industry that depend on having a very good visual system. For example, robotics. If you want to have robots that could do jobs as well as humans, for example, like if if whether they are types of robots that build cars, for example, or assistant robots that can help us with every, everyday life. The vision is a is a necessary uh, module, if you will in their operating, that unless they have a very good vision model, they would not be able to do many of these tasks that we, we want to ask them to do, right? But um, yeah, I think right now I can think of these two, but I'm sure like there are many more examples of this. And there are many people from many different fields that are now uh, kind of trying to get the machine learning and combine with their own field of research and to, to come up with new problems for both their field and machine learning to be solved. Are there uh, any emergent <clears throat> properties of uh, machine vision that you've seen, or is the goal just to get it to the level of uh, human vision and it's good good enough, or do we want to take it beyond there? Yeah, I think I think the challenge is mostly about uh, what the algorithm is, uh, when and if, when and when uh, we figure out what the algorithm is for learning good representations of visual visual information that are we are exposed to. I think um, at that point, you're not necessarily tied to how good the human vision would be, right? Because now uh, human vision is, is at least partly is dependent on the, uh, the resources that is available to it. The resources being the neurons and the specific uh, architecture of the brain, the connection between these neurons. Uh, but if we figure out like how, what, how the algorithm that these uh, circuits are using to learn new visual representations, then we should be able to extrapolate them by giving them even more resources. Or, uh, for example, you can think that if you think of the human eye or the retina at the back of the eye as the, the, the lens or the, the, the front part of the camera that basically senses the light from outside world, the, the least that we can do is to, um, to allow an artificial visual vision system to have an even higher resolution uh, camera at the input. And that on its own could enable uh, artificial vision to be operating even better than how human vision would operate. Oh, you mean having um, an AI system using a gigapixel camera or yeah, a super high kind of resolution like a, camera to do yeah, the initial scene? Exactly, that's like a, a very naive example, but that's the, the, the first thing that you can do with an artificial vision that algorithmically or computationally does as good as humans. That's one step that you can push it even further beyond human vision. I guess the interesting thing you can do with machine vision is that you can see what the machine is seeing as well at the same time, right? Right. Of course, it depends on how interpretable that machine vision is, right? And that's, that's another interesting domain of like research in machine learning and in vision research that try to that focuses on making these uh, these algorithms, these models, these networks to be more interpretable, so that we would we would would be easier for us to understand what's happening in these models. Okay, makes sense. What about um, machine vision? Is it using infrared? Is it using UV? Um, 
other parts of the spectrum that we can't normally see. Yeah, Can it yeah, see a finer of, resolution of certain wavelengths that we can see? Right. That's kind of related to the, the the example that I gave earlier. Like I was thinking of like a higher resolution sensor in the input, but you're you're now uh, basically your 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 suggestion, your question is uh, going to the same direction, thinking that what if we had like other additional sensors in the input that would basically make the the range of frequencies that we could observe wider, right? Like infrared or ultraviolet, these are like two different frequencies. Of course, like the, uh, again, it depends on how good we can approximate the computations that are done in the brain. If we if we can figure out those computations, those those algorithms, there is the potential that we can apply the same type of computation to new inputs, new types of inputs like the infrared camera, for example, to try to learn. Uh, useful representation, useful information from the, these coming signals that could help us with doing a specific behavior. Whether like we can think of a range of behaviors. For example, for infrared, there is an uh, there is an evidence example, and that is like you would be able to see in the dark, see better in the dark, right? So in in principle, that is possible, and I'm sure people, other research groups, are already working on these, and that these are very exciting and interesting. Mm. So, what are some of the particulars of of your research? What do you uh, what are you narrowly focused on right now? Um, so, my my main research goals are uh, at the time are mostly uh, focused on vision, human vision, and trying to build and improve our current uh, models for primate vision in general. And in particular, what I what I have been working on, what I've been focused on, is to try to use these models to to manipulate the neural activity in the brain, kind of like giving us uh, a tool so that we can use it to, to better understand the brain and, of course, to, to be able to, to set the brain state into a desired state. So far, what we've been doing was, was mostly a proof of concept of something that kind of looks like this, but we're hoping that we would be pushing this forward uh, beyond sensory corpuses because that's, that's basically where we, we apply we applied our technique. We used a neural network to try to induce a desired neural pattern of activity in the visual cortex, right? But uh, in a, like a longer domain, like a vision, and for the future, if you have, we think that if you have good models of higher cognitive areas, higher cognitive uh, functions in the brain, we should, in principle, be able to do uh, a similar thing. Uh, to the higher level functions, right? For example, if you have a good memory, if you have a good model of memory or a good model of how we react emotionally to visual stimuli, we should be able to, to, to now uh, have some level of control over emotions uh, in our brain, right? And that could lead to potential applications that uh, I want to think that could be used for treating some brain disorders. Uh, for example, if you have um, some patients with a specific disorder, um, if you can define their, their problem as, as a control problem, if you wish, that, uh, for example, we know that uh, yeah, the, brain, the brain response, the normal brain response to a visual stimulus uh, should be the, like pattern A, but we have a person with a particular disorder that is showing an irregular pattern of activity. And then using these type of models, uh, we're hoping that we would be able to, to change the pattern of activity in the disorder case to be more like the normal case, the, the pattern that we expect to be emerging in the brain. 
hope that is clear. I don't know if uh, I, I did yeah, the job. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Well, um, it seems like, you know, for people, they don't have, um, they can't discriminate everything that they see. You know, like if I, uh, I don't know, if I'm a man, I never look at like women's purses. I literally probably don't even see them. I just filter them out, you know, or if mm-hmm. I'm not a an x-ray technician, I can't yeah. interpret x-rays when I see them. I literally don't know what I'm seeing. So it seems like machine vision will have to be uh, an amalgamation of, I don't know, dozens or hundreds of different tuned neural networks that perceive certain objects better than others. And all of them together maybe uh, may go into a machine vision system that's robust. This is my guess. Or, or is it we're trying to get one system, one neural network to be able to see all kinds of objects? I see. Uh, let me let me first see if I understand your question clearly. You're you're asking whether if we cannot name an object, we cannot see that object. For example, if I don't know what a woman's purse looks like, I can still describe it to you, right? So I can see it, but maybe I don't know the word to to tell you what I'm seeing, right? But you're still seeing it, right? But you know, with people, there's there's definitely a learning curve for things that we don't normally see. So is it too much to expect one gigantic, you know, 8 million layer neural network, for instance, to be able to process thousands of different types of images in the visual field, you know, it, or we, we yeah. have to string together many very narrow select, you know, machine vision applications to make one that would work yeah. on many objects. Yeah, yeah, I, got, I think I got your question. So. Uh, the the learning that we're talking about and the time that it takes for us to be able to recognize these objects, part of this training is is not necessarily the way that we perceive these objects. It it could be more related to we see the object, we can still describe the object. We we need to remember what to call the object, right? For example, to call a, this this notebook in front of me as a notebook or a phone if I have never seen a phone. So that next time I see a phone in a different pose, a different angle, a different size, different types of it, I could still be able to call it a phone, right? But we believe that uh, the, the, the part of this network, the part of the brain that, is, that the rest of the brain uses to perceive and name objects is, is common to a large degree. And um, it's, it's basically trained throughout lifetime. And most of the training is done very early during development. And uh, to answer your question that you said, whether we should expect a single neural network to be able to, to recognize all of these objects uh, all together within the same network, or whether we should have smaller and more specialized neural networks that together gives us the ability to recognize all of these objects. I would, this is my opinion, but I would put my bet on having a very large neural network that does the job for everything we need to do, rather than focusing on specialized micro circuits that we can put together and uh, get to our function. Of course, some of this might have been done during uh, evolution, evolutionarily, like as uh, humans were developing throughout ages. But uh, I think the best bet right now would be to try to focus on a single larger neural network that could get us to to our goal, basically enabling us to do the behaviors that we desire or we are forced to do because of the environment. So how good are some of the top systems out there if you compare them to uh, you know, how people can see? In certain fields, I've heard they're excelling, in certain fields not. So what's the state of the art from your perspective? Yeah, there are many, and now we have many good models that can do a wide range of uh, a range of tasks that 
maybe not long time, not not a long time ago, we only thought that humans would be able to, like for instance, or even the the object categorization, saying what object exists in an image, was not possible by maybe even a decade ago, right? But now they're doing all kind of stuff. They're being used in autonomous driving. They're not so as robust, as reliable as humans, but um, they're, 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 they've come a, a, a long way since maybe a decade ago. But I think that one of the main problems with current uh, machine learning tools and machine learning models is that they're not reliable enough. Um, they, they can do good uh, on, for example, on smaller data sets that the uh, that the the stimuli, for example, in image categorization, that the images in those in those uh, data sets are controlled. They're controlled to be to be natural. They're controlled for the objects to be in specific poses. Like we don't normally see objects that are in weird shapes or weird poses, right? But um, uh, as humans or as primates, we are very robust to many many ways that we can see these objects. For example, you can imagine that. We are very good at uh, recognizing different objects uh, under different light conditions. We, in many cases, we can even uh, recognize what objects in front of us, even if we show, if we, if we see a shadow of that object, right? So, some of, uh, basically, what the point that I want to make is that we are, um, our recognition systems, our vision, is more reliable. It, we can rely on it. We can depend on it in a wider range, right? Wider range of applications, wider range of uh, environments, like conditions, whether they are uh, conditions like lighting or pose, or it could be relevant to like what context we're seeing, right? So some of this also could be because of so much experience that we, that we gather throughout our lifetime, that uh, a lot of these models, even though they're being trained on many millions of images, uh, it might not be comparable to the level of experience that uh, humans are exposed to. Are you able to, you know, to train systems so they can they can interpret shadows of things? Or, I mean, is any of that even useful? You know, like I can um, tell you, there's a cat up in the tree, or an upside down cat, or the shadow of a cat, or a cat playing yeah, the I've piano seen, wearing a suit. But is that useful? I'm thinking uh, the the reason I talked about that was not. Uh, just to just to uh, suggest that we should be doing only on shadows of objects, but uh, training training these networks to be able to recognize. For example, if we talk about only object recognition for simplicity, if we allow these networks to be exposed to many different conditions, including being able to recognize objects not by seeing the objects but by seeing the shadows of those objects, it could help us to to get to better, more reliable. Uh, models of what's happening in the brain. So that, for example, if you're going to use this vision system in an autonomous car and the, the car is driving uh, at night, maybe even before a, a, a pedestrian starts walking across the street, even if we, we, sh we see that our vision system, the, our machine vision system, sees the shadow of that person being reflected on the road, it would be able to now predict that there is a person there and it should, it should try to uh, break before it gets to that person. Okay, well, very good, makes sense. So what's ahead in the next uh, couple of years in machine vision? What do you think is gonna be, be possible? Um, I think there, there is now a, a lot of push towards now uh, putting these vision systems in even larger models that are being trained to do 
more complex and more um, more realistic types of uh, behaviors. Uh, by that I mean like going beyond object recognition or uh, scene segmentation or scene understanding. Just going directly to the types of behaviors that us as humans or primates are built to do. For example, like surviving in an environment, right? And then uh, uh, develop these vision systems as part of that bigger model that is being trained on doing a more realistic task, right? Like, for example, a, a set of uh, experiments or a set of, uh, of the models that are being trained, uh, of course, in a, it, these are toy examples, but these, these include the models that are being trained to be able to play different games, right? Right now, a lot of research is being done for these models to be able to play Atari games. But you can also imagine that uh, given the, the progress in virtual systems and game engines, we, we might be able to sometime in the near future to scale up these games to more realistic types of games that could better approximate the types of experience that uh, our vision system or even our brain is exposed to during a lifetime. For example, imagine that we have a, a very complex virtual system like a game engine, a world, if you will, a virtual world, that we can put agents, artificial agents, with artificial brains into these, uh, these game engines. And then uh, their goal would be to survive uh, for as long as they can. And throughout the process, they would be training different parts of their brain, including their vision system. And then I think it would be very interesting, both from machine learning point of view, as well as brain science and neuroscience point of view, uh, what those brains would end up looking like when they're developed in those kind of environments, would they become more similar to, to the brain that we are equipped with? The kind of, if you start recording uh, from internals of those models, how similar would those be to the, our brain if we record from there? Mm, that makes sense. Hmm. I guess seeing what the, you know, playing video games does to machines' brains, just like it would, what it does to our brains. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I meant. Like, basically trying to fill up the gap between the types of experiences uh, primates or humans are exposed to and the types uh, mm. of experiences that the machines are exposed to. Like fill up the gap, make it more similar as, as well as we can. Okay, makes sense. Well, very good. What, um, what do you think is possible maybe 20 years out? You know, I'm going way out here, but um, what do you think is going to be the outer edge of possibility for machine vision, let's say, in 20 years? Um. Yeah, of course, the possibilities are like unlimited, but in relation to, to brain and neuroscience, I, I, can, I can say most in that direction. Like right now, there are, uh, there are three main bottlenecks that are, um, are kind of preventing us getting closer to, to, the, to understanding the brain and making these models more similar to the brain. And uh, those are one, uh, how good we can record from the brain. Second is like how good we can approximate the function in the brain. And thirdly, how good we can act on the brain. I'm hoping in the next 20 years, we would have a lot of progress in all three areas. Only one of the areas that is actually directly related to your question, which is about uh, what functions are being done in the brain that is related to artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and vision systems. But um, I, I imagine if you, if you ask a machine learning scientist maybe a decade ago, uh, like what to expect in the next 10 years, they wouldn't have been, pr probably they wouldn't have been uh, predicting that we're going to have this much pro 
uh, progress in the maybe seven, eight years, the last seven, eight years. So it's, it's very hard to, to predict what's going to happen. But I think 20 years is, is a lot of time and we can hopefully make a lot of progress. I don't know how, how far we can go and how, how, more, how much more similar to the brain we can have these systems, these models to be. But probably a lot of the, a lot of the tasks that are still being done exclusively by humans in the next 20 years, many of them uh, will be replaced by machines or could be replaced by machines to some degree. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Puyo, what's the best way for people to get in touch or to ask more questions about your research? Uh, they can look me up online um, or they can email me. At, should I say my email address? Yeah, it's up to you. They, you know, they can go to MIT and is, uh, are you working under a particular lab name? What's the best place for yeah, them to, I, uh, to find I work, you? Yeah, yeah. I, I work at the Carlo Lab at MIT, so it's pretty easy to, to find me. You can just Google my name. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Puya, thank you for coming. I really appreciate uh, your time and everything. Yeah, glad to talk to you and thank you for inviting me again. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.